Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm Michael Serapio. Welcome to Primetime Politics. Well, a bit of a different program for you right now because we are dedicating the next hour to show you coverage of the official visit of Joe Biden to Ottawa, his very first visit as U.S. President. Of course, he's been here before as Vice President, but this was his first time as the U.S. Head of State and Head of Government that began early on Friday with an arrival at Parliament Hill. Joining us right now, Rob Russo, the former uh, Bureau Chief for the CBC, Parliamentary Bureau Chief for CBC, as well as the Canadian Press, joining us in our coverage today. Rob, thank you for being with us. Great to be here, Michael. Uh, and really what is going to be an important day, and, and we are going to begin it by seeing the arrival of Joe Biden uh, at Parliament Hill. And in fact, if we take a look at this shot over here, we can see already, uh, this is the McKenzie entrance to, to the West Block, where of course Parliament has now moved temporarily as Centre Block is being refurbished. Uh, and we will see Joe Biden not that long. He is just left the hotel with his entourage. He'll be making his way up. In fact, I think we are seeing the beginnings of that. Talk to us about the importance of this visit. You know, Joe Biden, Trudeau obviously have gotten on, but there have been tensions recently. Right. So what is the importance of this visit? Well, th this is a visit for everybody. As we start to see the substantial, lengthy pr presidential motorcade mm -hmm. come on. Uh, look, it, it's, it's an extraordinary event. There's only been nine presidents who've addressed Parliament. He is going to be the ninth. Um, it's, it's special because the relationship isn't always an easy one. This is one of those rare times in history where the president and the Prime Minister actually get along. Mm -hmm. uh, the relationship personally between the two is very good, so it's a moment when you can really advance the interests of the relationship be because of that. Biden knows Canada, not just as his time as Vice President, but when he was the head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, he knew that there was, in some ways, some instability on his northern border because of the national unity question. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember when I was a young correspondent in Washington, uh, and I had a couple of scrums with him. He actually brought that up. How bad are things in Quebec? So this is a man who does have his fingers on the pulse of Canada that way. Also, both of them could use a boost at home. The prime minister is right now besieged a little bit on the issue of Chinese interference in our elections. And, and Joe Biden is not a popular president. Interestingly, though, he's a very popular president in Canada. Um, if uh, Polls have been taken the last week showing that uh, his, his favorability ratings are very, very high here. Again, not unusual for a Democratic president. Um, so uh, he's coming here to get a little bit of a bomb. Uh, the Prime Minister could use a little bit of a boost as well, so it's an important moment for both of them. And we should say, even though we started the, seeing the cars arrive, again, this is the McKenzie entrance to West Block of Parliament Hill. Uh, there are about 80 vehicles in this presidential motorcade. So I think we still may have some time before we see the so-called beast, the uh, yeah. limousine that actually carries the U.S. president. But it is very interesting, uh, to your point, because you know, it was Kennedy's famous uh, quote about geography making uh, Canada and the U.S. neighbors, history making us friends, economics making us partners, uh, uh, necessity making us allies. And yet this is being billed as a chance to, to, to reaffirm our relationship. And I think in some ways that is a reference to the fact that there 
was strain on the relationship, in particular with the last administration. There, there was. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's interesting you bring up Kennedy because he said that at a time when the relationship between him and Prime Minister Diefenbaker was actually quite wretched. They loathed each other. Um, and so uh, Kennedy was delivering nice words, but the personal relationship between them was awful. Mm -hmm. uh, he mispronounced Diefenbaker's name, called him Diefenbacher. Uh, he uh, mocked the, the prime minister's French. Uh, his wife, Jackie Kennedy, could speak French. When he heard Diefenbaker speak French, he said, if that guy can do it, maybe I can do it as well. But this is one of those rare moments when the two of them are genuinely affectionate towards each other, like each other, uh, and a, a real moment for Canada to advance its interests if it can profit from that very good relationship at the top. Mm -hmm. And of course, a uh, top line of that would be uh, the, the economic relationship between our two countries, because always an important trade partner, yeah. although under the Trump administration that was very much challenged by the very fact that NAFTA was thrown out and that had to be renegotiated. Uh, let's take one more look here. The, that is... Uh, the beast. the beast, as you yeah. see it. Uh, this is the presidential uh, limousine, if you will, oftentimes called Cadillac One, the first car even called the stagecoach is the, the code name, but uh, also popularly known as the beast. Let's take in the moment as uh, members of the media get ready to uh, snap their shots and photographs of the U.S. president arriving on Parliament Hill. They're opening those doors, and those doors probably weigh close to a quarter ton or a half ton each ton each with all of that armor in there. They're uh, able to withstand uh, tank shells, they say. Uh, and here comes President Biden. Yeah, absolutely. And here we go. And the, I know the Prime Minister is waiting for him. Let's take it in. And there you have it, the Prime Minister entering with the President into West Block. Rob, I'm going to get you to stand by here because we do want to bring in Andrew Thompson, CPAC's Andrew Thompson. He's actually inside West Block right now, uh, getting ready uh, ahead of the welcoming party for the U.S. President. Uh, Andrew, can you hear Michael right now? Hello. Hello, Hi. Michael. <laughs> Hi. Listen, uh, paint, to us, uh, paint for us, rather, uh, a picture of where you are right now, what, what the scene is like. Right, Michael. So I'm right here in the foyer of the House of Commons, where uh, in a few hours uh, we're going to be hearing the president uh, deliver his address. Uh, they are getting the chamber ready because certainly a lot of dignitaries coming along with members of the Senate and Supreme Court justices uh, as well. I'm about 12 paces uh, from that hallway where we're about to see the prime minister and uh, the president come up on the red carpet. A lot of vacuuming of that carpet uh, in the time I've been here this morning. And uh, we're about to see them go into a room that's normally used for liberal caucus meetings where there's going to be a welcoming ceremony, a long line of dignitaries to greet the president. Uh, we're going to have party leaders from the House of Commons, Senate leaders, uh, the speakers of both uh, the House and the Senate, uh, as well as other uh, officials as part of that welcoming party. Then we're going to see the president sign two 
official ceremonial guest books, one for the Senate and one for the House of Commons. And then uh, as that ceremonial uh, part of this visit uh, ends, then we're going to see the president get down to business with meetings. And we know he is going to meet the leader of the opposition and also hold a bilateral meeting with the prime minister before a wider meeting uh, with members of both countries' cabinets. The president has brought the secretary of state along with the Energy Secretary here to Ottawa. There is a long list of Canadian ministers also scheduled in this meeting, including Finance Minister Christian Freeland, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, the Minister of National Defence, uh, the Minister of Industry, are just uh, among the list of, of uh, top Canadian ministers who are going to be in that meeting before the President comes back downstairs here into the House of Commons chamber here in West Block at approximately 2 p.m. Eastern, although, uh, as you know, Michael, we are a bit delayed here this morning. <laughs> a bit delayed, perhaps to be expected as we follow this very busy schedule for the U.S. President. Uh, Andrew, thank you. We'll speak again. Uh, CPAC's Andrew Thompson in uh, West Block of Parliament Hill. And with that, let's go back to the images on Parliament Hill there. You saw a little bit, as, you were, as we were speaking to Andrew, you saw a bit of the uh, reception line, the official welcoming committee. And we have now here officials making their way down the hallway Again, ahead of Joe Biden and Justin Trudeau, we are taking the scene. You know, Rob, this is really quite the day and really a busy day for the U.S. president. All reset, they landed last night and they bill it as a two-day working visit. But really, it seems very much crammed into this one Friday. Yeah, and what you're, what you're getting a look at over the next little while is the fact that it is a state visit. And with that comes a certain amount of pomp and a certain amount of protocol. And so he will go down the line and meet a whole bunch of people who are the Speaker of the Senate, the Speaker of the House of Commons. This wouldn't happen normally on a, on a working visit, uh, and just like the Governor General going out to meet him last night. And what, one thing we're going to see with Joe Biden, if you talk to the people who know him, is he likes to talk. He's not <laughs> he the kind of guy does. who's just going to shake hands and then move on. He will have words, and that's one of the reasons why he is always... Uh, running late. Yeah, he will. Somebody will say something to him. He it becomes a conversation. Um, uh, maybe we should get him on the air if he likes. To talk <laughs> exactly. He's, he's like me, as I was saying to you, a bit of a sunburnt tongue. <laughs> well, let's look at, look at uh, the reception line. This is the official welcoming party, as you see there. Uh, Joe Biden shaking hands with George Fury, the Speaker of the Senate. Now, Anthony Rota, Speaker of the House of Commons, as they continue to make their way down. So. Uh, this is quite the uh, reception line, in fact, uh, and uh, you see there Pierre Poliev getting ready to say hello as well. As we heard, uh, there will be a separate meeting with him and the president, but right now, part of the official welcoming on Parliament Hill. Uh, you've covered this more than once. Uh, are you ever, in la I guess, lacking in awe of, of the, the ceremony that's used in one of these visits? Every, everybody, everybody is, uh, is, is probably a kind of... Uh, starstruck right now. Um, it was very interesting to listen to Mr. Poilievre say, we believe an, op an active opposition is an important part of, of, of government in our country. Uh, you know, a lot of the work gets done behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. A lot of the work was probably done last night over dinner and then after dinner. There were pictures of the Prime Minister and the President having a lengthy chat. I'm sure the Prime Minister briefed him on the opposition leader. I wouldn't think that they would be necessarily uh, kindred spirits philosophically. Also very interesting to watch the Prime Minister not acknowledge uh, Pierre Poitiers at all. <laughs> he didn't shake his hand, he didn't say hello, 
Uh, so there appears to be a little bit of frost between the two of them as the, as the president went on down the line. Wow. It'll be very interesting to see the, the exchange between uh, uh, Mr. Boisbert and, uh, and uh, 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 the, the, the president. Let's listen in. As we continue to watch this welcome, I mean, you know, you were noting the fact how brief the conversation was, Rob, with Pierre Poitier, the, the leader of the Conservative Party. He certainly seemed to have more words with Jagmeet Singh, not that long. And then, of course, Elizabeth May, who then gave him a piece by chocolate candy bar. Of course, the, the chocolate made famous by the Syrian family who fled the war in Syria to resettle in Nova Scotia. Uh, let's just watch this moment as uh, Joe Biden signs the official guest book, and we'll pick up our conversation after that. It's so great to see you, Joe. Obviously, we've been working closely together over the past uh, few years on how to build uh, strong economies for everyone uh, in our two countries and around the world, uh, how to continue our fight against climate change and prepare uh, a stronger economic future for everyone, uh, but also how we deal with uh, changing geopolitical security contexts and how uh, we continue the important work of keeping our citizens safe and standing up for our values 
uh, everywhere around the world. We have no uh, greater friend and ally than the United States, and it's always a, always a real pleasure to be able to, to welcome you and to sit down with you. I am delighted to be able to welcome here President Biden uh, and uh, Joe and myself have been working for several years regarding economic growth for everybody, the fight against climate change, and also the complex uh, security climate uh, and uh, the defense of our democratic values, and I'm delighted to have him here. I think 2016 I was here, and uh, you know, uh, the one great thing, and I tell other world leaders I meet with when they ask about the geopolitical circumstances, well, I said, we're lucky. We have Canada to our north, share these values. All the values are the same. We disagree and agree on things occasionally, but there's no fundamental difference in the democratic values we share. And it really makes a big difference. And so it's an honor to be here. We have a lot to talk about. and. Uh, I, uh, I think we're gonna. I think we're gonna get a lot done today. I'm Michael Serapio, and welcome back to CPAC's special coverage of the U.S. President's first official visit to Ottawa as the Commander-in-Chief, of course, Joe Biden having been here before as U.S. Vice President uh, at the end of that time. We are joined once again by Rob Russo, the former Ottawa Bureau Chief for the CBC as well as for the Canadian Press, and David Jacobson, the 22nd United States Ambassador to Canada from 2009 to 2013. Rob, Ambassador, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be here. Good to be here. Now, just to tell people uh, why we're coming back and joining you right now, we are just a few minutes away from a parliamentary address by the U.S. president. As we heard from Rob earlier today, only the ninth time a U.S. president has addressed the Canadian parliament. A huge uh, list of who's who, not only current parliamentarians, we're also seeing the former prime ministers, Joe Clark, as well as Jean Chrétien. Maureen McTeer is there. We also are seeing uh, Ed Broadbent, the former NDP leader. So many people turning out for this speech. And with that, as we wait for it to begin, Ambassador, I'll, I'll begin with you right now. What might we hear in this speech from Joe Biden? There, there's, of course, this history of American presidents giving both the good and the bad, highlighting the relationship, but also underlining the challenges. What might we hear from Joe Biden this time around? Well, let me say first, and, and when I came up here last night, I started thinking about it. Um, in the United States Embassy here in Ottawa, there is a large rotunda in the center, and there is a, a, a a marble wall that goes around. And in that marble wall, literally, it's actually granite, carved into the granite wall are the remarks of presidents in speeches to Canadian parliaments, most famous of which is President Kennedy and how we're united by geography. Um, and, you know, they may need another wall after today, <laughs> I, guess, I, I guess is what I'm saying. Um, I, in terms of what we're likely to hear, 
I think most importantly, we are likely to hear the president emphasizing the relationship that the United States and the American people have with Canada and the Canadian people. Uh, it is, it's not perfect. It never was. It never will be. We have a little bit different interests from time to time. But it's, it's an incredibly strong relationship. Uh, I've always said that, that there are no two neighbors anywhere in the world that wouldn't trade their problems for our problems. Uh, so you're going to hear about that. You're also going to hear, and, and I think we've already seen today from the body language and other, the, the warmth and the, the genuine affection um, that the prime minister has or the president has for the prime minister and vice versa. Uh, so that's one set of things. And then on the issues, there are kind of two buckets. There are the, when, when the president and the prime minister get together, they have a little bit different priorities. Uh, the president has the whole world to work, worry about. And so my guess is the president is going to talk a lot about the situation in the world and how Canada and the United States can work together to address some of those problems, the Ukraine and Russia, China, Middle East. Um, and then there are the, the list of bilateral issues, which tend to be uh, more zero-sum games. There's a winner and there's a loser. Um, and there, you know, we've, we've heard some news about Wrexham Road and the, the, uh, the uh, changing of, of the agreement so that uh, both countries will be able to the return. Country, yeah, yeah, yes. Um, uh, things like that. There are perennial issues, softwood lumber, which has been around forever and will be around forever, and Canadian, Canadian dairy and, and some others by America. Um, but I think the, the focus of the speech is going to be about the relationship and about how Canada and the United States share values around the world and how we can work together. Mm -hmm. You talk about this special relationship, and we know, and this is from, from you know, third-party research, Pew Research among them, that said at the end of the last administration, very few Canadians had, or minority Canadians, remained to have a positive view of the United States. Where do you think the relationship is right now? Um, I was the ambassador during President Obama's days, and and that's probably as good as it can get. Okay, uh, he had a I don't know ninety percent approval rating in Canada. He wished he had as much of an approval rating in the United States. Um, but I think that the president has done a great job of rebuilding this relationship, not just with Canada, but with other allies around the world. You know, the great advantage geopolitically that the United States has globally is its allies. We've got lots of them, Canada being a very, very important one. Um, some of China, Russia, not so much. Uh, and President Obama, who is steeped in foreign policy, was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee for many years, uh, he understands that. Uh, and so from the day he got there, he was trying to rebuild this relationship. And, and I, I think it's very strong. It, it, it is. It's, a, it's, it's, it's not perfect, never will be, but it's very strong. Mm -hmm. Now, I, I do want to explain to people at home what's going to happen over the next few minutes, because as we continue our discussion and wait for the speech to actually begin, once Anthony Rota, the, the Speaker of the House of Commons, uh, goes to the Speaker's throne, we will actually then go to the House. We will be quiet here so we can listen to the speech without commentary, including the, the introduction uh, 
being made by Canadian officials, the Prime Minister presumably among them. But as we wait for that moment, and so to, to, to both the Ambassador and to Rob, forgive me if I cut you off abruptly. We, we, we do have uh, the rules that we have to abide by here. But Rob, what are you going to be listening for in particular from this speech? A couple of things. Number one, uh, presidents tend to, to um, uh, put their, their stamp on how they assess the re their relationship often in these speeches. President Nixon's was a very, very interesting speech, for instance. Uh, that was at a time of a lot of economic nationalism in Canada. Uh, and Pierre Trudeau, Trudeau the Elder, who was prime minister, was uh, really wary of, uh, of that. There was a lot of economic nationalism happen happening in Canada. And Richard Nixon um, uh, reassured him and Canadians that we are not here. We don't see you as a branch plant economy. We're not here to try and dictate what happens in your economy. We admire your independence. Again, fascinating speech at an interesting time in our history because the two men really quite loathed each other privately. And yet th there was Richard Nixon making this um, concession to, to, to Trudeau. So where does Joe Biden see Canada in the world and Canada as an island. I'll be looking for that. The second thing I'll be looking for is often they have an ask of Canada. Um, uh, uh, President Obama had an ask of Canada. Step up a little bit. We want to see more of you out there. Uh, what is Joe Biden's ask of Canada going to be at this time? Uh, I'll, I'll be watching and listening to hear what that might be as well. The ambassador referred to what's going on around the world. Uh, clearly, uh, I think the Americans are pleased with what we're doing in the Baltics for Ukraine, would like to see us do more in Haiti. But is there anything more that the Americans would like us to do globally? Is there anything more that they would like us to do in terms of econ our economic partnership? And is there anything that they're particularly concerned about in terms of Chinese interference, which is a huge, huge issue here? Or will he offer reassuring words? Those might come during the press conference later but I'll be keeping my antenna bristling for those as well. Mm -hmm. and, and let's talk a bit about security, Ambassador, if you will, because, of course, as you know, right now, for, for weeks, uh, this country, the, the, this city and parliament has been very much focused on the, the, the foreign interference that we are hearing took place in 2019, 2021. Uh, how troublesome is that for Washington? All right, well, we have our own history of foreign interference with our elections. Um, and I will say as, and, and this does not differentiate me from most everyone I know, but as someone who loves democracy, that any country that interferes with another country's democratic elections, uh, that's not good. Uh, it, it, it's, it's worse than not good. Now, I'm not going to get into the internal politics in Canada about, you know, should there be public hearings, uh, uh, you know, how, how they should address it. Uh, I will note that uh, former Governor General David Johnston, uh, who is about as decent a guy as I've ever met and intelligent a guy, uh, is apparently going to be looking into this. And that gives me some confidence. But but. It's a terrible thing. It shouldn't happen. Uh, both Canada with respect to its problems and the United States with respect to ours uh, should do our best to get to the bottom of it. And we should do what we can to prevent it from ever happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, beyond the, the, the profound, I, I will ask just a, a bit of the housekeeping, because as you know, many Canadians are making 
uh, I guess an issue of the fact that as 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 much as these two leaders like each other, and historically this country is the first stop for a U.S. president, that was not the case. Joe Biden, I think, visited some 19 countries before actually physically coming to Canada. Uh, what do you make of that question and that type of, uh, I guess, uh, quandary from Canadians? Well, I, I understand from the Canadian perspective the feeling that, gee, you know, Maybe he should have come here sooner. Uh, he has met with and talked with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau many times in the last two and a half years. Um, one thing I, I, I always find, back when I was in the government, whether it was when I was working in the White House or when I was the ambassador to Canada, um, there would always be people who'd say, why aren't you doing this now or why aren't you doing that? And I would oftentimes think to myself, well, you know, if they knew kind of some of the competing issues that I'm trying to deal with or the president's trying to deal with, uh, they might see this a little bit differently. So, you know, I can't answer how he has set his schedule. Uh, I'm not there anymore. Um, but I wouldn't read too much into this. And, and I wouldn't at all read into this the fact that he doesn't care about, doesn't think about Canada. I have had personal conversations with him about this. Uh, and I can assure you, he is just immensely fond of this country, immensely so. I, I wonder if you were advising him. Uh, and, 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 and he'd be in big trouble. Well, <laughs> it sounds like you already are advising, given what you said. The Canadians would like to hear the president say something reassuring about the integrity of our elections. Would you advise him to say something like that? You know, that's an interesting question. And I think my answer would be I would not, because it is an internal political problem in Canada. I think he can speak more generically right. about the problems of interference in democratic elections, uh, as we talked about earlier. But um, I, I'm not so sure that it is up to any foreign leader to say to the Canadian government, the Canadian people, this is what I think you should do. Now, the highlight of the Friday had to be the U.S. president's speech to Parliament, a speech that was attended by dignitaries past and present. We'll show you that speech, or at least a bit of it right now, followed afterwards by a bit of the news conference that the U.S. president held with the prime minister. I have to say, I like your teams except the Leafs. tell you why. They beat the Flyers back in January. That's why. And if I didn't see that, I married a Philly girl. If I didn't say that, I'd be sleeping alone, fellas. I like you, but not that much. <laughs> Through more than a century of that historic endeavor, Canada and the United States have had each other's backs. In war and in peace, we have been the stronghold of liberty, safeguard for the fundamental freedoms that give us our, our lives, literally give our lives meaning. We have gladly stepped into the responsibilities of global leadership because we understand all 
that is at risk for Canadians and Americans alike when freedom is under attack anywhere in the world. Today, our destinies are intertwined and they're inseparable, not because of the inevitability of geography, but because it's a choice, a choice we've made again and again. The United States chooses to link our future to, with Canada because we know that we'll find no better partner. And I mean this from the bottom of my heart. No more reliable ally, no more steady friend. And today I say to you and to all the people of Canada that you will always, always be able to count on the United States of America. I guarantee you. Together, we have built a partnership that is in an incredible advantage to both our nations. That doesn't mean we never disagree, as any two countries will do from time to time. But when we disagree, we solve our differences in friendship and in goodwill, because we both understand our interests are fundamentally aligned. The world needs Canada and the United States working together with our partners around the world to rally strong and effective global action. Nowhere is that more obvious than our united response to Russia's brutal aggression against Ukraine. We've stood together. We've stood together to defend sovereignty, to defend democracy, to defend freedom for ourselves and all who wish it. And I'm very glad to see the two Michaels, the two Michaels, Michael Scarvo and Michael Coveran, are safely back to their families after more than 1,000 days, 1,000 days in detention. If my mother were here, she'd say, God bless you both. Thank you for joining us today, and thank you for having the opportunity to meet you earlier. You know, the incredible diversity that defines each of our nations is our strength. And the Prime Minister Trudeau and I know this is a belief that you and I share. We both build administrations that look like America and look like Canada. I'm very proud. I'm very proud that both of us have cabinets that are 50 percent women for the first time in history. Even if you don't agree, guys, I'd stand up. <laughs> We took the lesson from you, because the bottom line is this. We make it easier for historically underrepresented, underserved communities to dream, to create, to succeed. We build a better future for all our people. So let's continue the work. Where there are no barriers, things look better. Where there are barriers to equal opportunity, we got to tear them down. Where inequity stifles potential, where we unleash the full power of our people. Where injustice holds sway. Let's insist on justice being done. Those are the shared values that imbue all of our efforts, our very democracy, our vitality, and our, vi our vibrancy. You know, it's what seems it drives us all. Some places and some persons are kind of forgetting what the essence of democracy is. We have to reach, so what allows us to reach beyond the horizon. Let me close with this. A year after President Kennedy spoke in Canada's parliament, he delivered a famous speech at Rice University, issuing a challenge for Americans to go to the moon in a decade's time.
And remember what he said. You probably do, because we had to learn it when we were in school. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because it's easy, but because they're hard. Because that challenge is one that we are willing to accept, one that we're willing, unwilling to postpone, and one which we will win. That speech tapped into something deep in America's character something powerful, a belief that we can do big things. If you hold a second, just think about it. Turn on the television the last two years, whether it's in your country or mine. After two years of COVID, people began to wonder, can we still do big things? Big things. We sure in hell can. <laughs> that confidence. I believe it with every fiber in my being. That confidence can make the most audacious dreams reality. And less than seven years after Kennedy's speech, the entire world watched humanity lift its first footprints on those further shores. It inspired a generation and spurred much of the technology advancement we now enriches our daily lives. Today, our world once more stands at the cusp of breakthroughs and possibilities that have never before even been dreamt of. And Canada and the United States are leading and will continue to lead the way. In just a few days. In just a few days, NASA is going to announce an international team of astronauts who will crew the Artemis II mission. The first human voyage to the moon since Apollo mission ended more than 50 years ago will consist of three Americans and one Canadian. We choose to return to the moon together. Together we return to the moon. And from there, we look forward to Mars and to the limitless possibilities that lie beyond. And here on Earth, our children who watch that flight are going to learn the names of those new pioneers. They'll be the ones who carry us into the future we hope to build. The Artemis generation. Ladies and gentlemen, we're living in an age of possibilities. Xi Jinping asked me in the Tibetan Plateau, could I define America? And I could have said the same thing if he asked about Canada. I said, yes, one word. And I mean it, one word. Possibilities. Nothing is beyond our capacity. We can do anything. We have to never forget. We must never doubt our capacity. Canada and the United States can do big things. We stand together, do them together, rise together. We're going to write the future together, I promise you. God bless you all and may God protect our troops. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Two questions, one for each of you. Mr. President, you talked today about the security and economic partnership with Canada. President Xi just went to Russia and expanded China's economic commitment with that country.
Why do you think many leading countries are choosing to form competing partnerships, and what does that mean for the world? Prime it, Minister Trudeau. Oh, sorry. Canada recently banned TikTok on government devices. Knowing what you know, are you comfortable with the idea of your children or family members using TikTok? Thank you. I've responded to the question first. Well, first of all, look, uh, in 10 years, Russia and, and, and uh, China have had 40 meetings, 40 meetings. And I disagree with the basic premise of your question. Uh, I have, uh, we have, uh, um, you know, uh, significantly expanded our alliances. I haven't seen that happen with China and or Russia or anybody else in the world. We're in a situation in the United States where NATO is stronger. We're all together. The G7, the Quad, the uh, ASEAN, uh, Japan and Korea. I have, uh, my staff pointed out to me, I have now met with 80 percent of the world leaders just since I've been president. We're the ones expanding the alliances. The opposition's not. Name for me where that's going. And tell me what happened. I don't mean to literally that, but rhetorically. Tell me how, in fact, you see a circumstance where China has made some significant commitment to Russia. And what commitment can they make economically? Economically. That, Pardon me? Their trade has increased, sir. Yeah, their trade has increased compared to what? Look, look, I, I don't take China lightly. I don't take Russia lightly. But I think we vastly exaggerate. I would hear, I've been hearing now for the past three months about China is going to provide significant weapons to Russia, and they're going to— Well, I've been talking about that. They haven't yet. Doesn't mean they won't. But they haven't yet. And if anything's happened, the West has coalesced significantly more. How about the Quad? How about Japan and the United States and South Korea? How about what we've done in terms of AUKUS? How about what we, I mean, so I, I just want to put it in perspective. I don't take it lightly what Japan, what China, excuse me, and, uh, uh, and Russia are doing. And it could get significantly worse. But let's put it in perspective. We are uniting coalitions. We, we, the United States and Canada. On TikTok, uh, we made a similar decision to uh, the American government and others when we said that we do not feel that the security profile is uh, safe for government-issued phones. Um, there are concerns around privacy and security, and that, that is why we have banned uh, TikTok from government-issued phones. But your question, Josh, was about um, what I do as a parent of teenagers uh, and my kids on social media. And on that, on that, uh, I am obviously uh, concerned with uh, their privacy and their security, which is uh, why I'm glad that on their phones that happen to be issued by the government, they no longer access TikTok. Uh, that was a big frustration for them. Really? This applies to us too, Dad? Yes, I just did that. Um, but I think as parents, we are understanding, particularly of teenagers, just how much of our kids' lives are lived online and how much they are impacted 
uh, not just by influence the way their friends are and peer pressure that all of us went through as teenagers, but a degree of misinformation, disinformation, and malicious activity uh, that is allowed for by incredible advances in technology that we are benefiting from in so many different ways. As governments, we have to make sure we're doing what we can to keep people safe in the public square, making sure we're pushing back against hate speech and incitations to violence online, and we're carefully calibrating legislation to do that. As a parent, I spend a lot of time talking to my kids about what's online and how they should try and you know, go outside and play a little more sports and not get so wrapped up in their phones. Um, and we're going to continue to do that. Our concerns around TikTok are around security uh, and access to information that the Chinese government could have to government phones. It's just a personal side benefit that my kids can't use TikTok anymore that I recommend everyone to use my, in, my encouragement to try and do. Uh, my first question is for the Prime Minister, but Mr. President, feel free to weigh in before my follow-up. Uh, <laughs> Prime Minister, we know, you've, we know that you've appointed a special rapporteur, but with what we've learned about Han Dong's communication with the Chinese Consular General, do you believe he advocated for the delayed release of the two Michaels? First of all, Han uh, gave uh, a strong speech in the House that I recommend uh, people uh, listen to, and uh, we fully uh, accept that he is stepping away from the Liberal caucus uh, in order to uh, vigorously contest these allegations. But I, I do want to take a step back and point out that foreign interference, interference by authoritarian governments like China, Russia, Iran, and others, is a very real challenge to our democracies and is absolutely unacceptable. It's why over the past number of years, the President and I have had many conversations about this and indeed will continue to work together with our democratic allies around the world to keep our institutions and our democracies safe from foreign interference. In 2018, when Canada hosted the G7 in Charlevoix, we actually created the G7 rapid response mechanism to protect our democracies in cases of interference. And we will continue to work together to make sure we're doing everything necessary to protect our democracies, which by definition are more open and therefore more vulnerable to foreign actors trying to weigh in in our politics, in our business, in our research institutions, and particularly impact on citizens themselves. Which is why over the past years Canada, like our allies around the world, has given itself new rigorous tools to counter foreign interference. And uh, with the work that our expert uh, rapporteur will do, with the work that our national Security Committee of Parliamentarians uh, will be doing, and other institutions, um, we will continue to do everything necessary to keep Canadians safe. Nothing to add. <laughs> Thank you. And uh, Mr. President, uh, when you took office, you cancelled the Keystone XL pipeline. Uh, this week, your government delayed the environmental assessment. 
to reroute Enbridge Line 5, and at the same time, you're approving oil drilling in Alaska. So what's your response to people who say it's hypocritical to stymie Canadian energy pro projects while allowing your own? First of all, uh, I don't think it is, but I'll be very brief. The difficult decision was on what we do with the Willow project in Alaska. And uh, my strong inclination was to disapprove of it across the board. But the advice I got from counsel was that if that were the case, I may very well lose in court and lose that case in court to the oil company and then not be able to do what I really want to do beyond that. And that is conserve significant amounts of Alaskan sea and land forever. I was able to see to it that we literally able to conserve millions of acres, not a, not a few, millions of acres of sea and land forever. So it cannot be used in the future. I am banking on, we'll find out, that the oil company is going to say not, that's not going to be challenged and they're going to go with, with three sites. And the energy that is going to be produced there, estimated, would, would account to 1%, 1% of the total production of oil in the world. And so I thought it was a good, a, a, the better gamble and a hell of a trade-off to have the Arctic Ocean, the Bering Sea, and so many other places off limits forever now. I think we put more land in conservation than any administration since Teddy Roosevelt. I'm not positive of that, but I think that's true. Thank you all. This is what concludes today's press conference. C'est ce qui m'aime faire la conférence de presse aujourd'hui. Thank you. And as they leave the podium, we remind you we have been watching the joint news conference of the Prime Minister and the U.S. President after Joe Biden's address to Parliament this afternoon. And to talk about that and to really wrap up this part of today's coverage, because we are going to take a break before the evening dinner, I want to bring back Rob Russo, former Ottawa Bureau Chief for CBC News, as well as the Canadian Press, and Louisa Savage, the Executive Editor of Growth at Politico. Louisa, Rob, thank you for being here. Great to be here, Mike. Listen, I'm going to divide up my first question to the sure. both of you. And Rob, you're here in Ottawa. Louisa, you're in Washington. So, Rob, my first question to you. From the Canadian perspective, having seen the announcement, uh, the, the communique, rather, and watching the day's events, where do you think Canada has gained? What areas has Canada gained in when it comes to this visit? Hard to determine that right now because a lot of what they've announced uh, doesn't really take um, uh, effect until the future. But if you looked at what the government had set out in terms of what it needed to accomplish, uh, they came very, very close to checking us off almost everything on their list. Number one, they needed to, to uh, guarantee that Canadian industry would not be shut out of the industries of the future. Clean energy, clean tech, uh, environmental cleanup, uh, the electric vehicle revolution. Uh, and they got uh, the, the president's word that uh, that Canada is going to be a critical part of that. The other thing that the Prime Minister needed to hear from the President and needed from the United States was the shutting down of the uh, uh, irregular migration at Roxham Road. And, and they got a deal on that as well. Those things uh, are, are two things that were very, very important for the Prime Minister and the government to accomplish out of this. The third thing is, 
Look, as we said before, Prime Minister Trudeau has been in a bit of a spiral politically. This allowed him, for a few hours anyway, to pull back on the rudder, to have the President of the United States here, to display what is clearly an affectionate relationship between two people who like each other and who at the executive level of government can actually get things done. That was kind of demonstrated by what was produced today. Uh, it was very, very interesting to hear uh, President Biden refuse to uh, answer a question about um, uh, Handong and, and, mm -hmm. and Chinese interference. Clearly, he did not want to weigh in on a subject that he thinks is a political grenade here in Canada. Mm -hmm. Which I'll get to back in a second. But, sure. Louisa, I'll, I'll get you in now. From the American perspective, what was accomplished with this visit, do you think? I think the most important thing that the United States is looking for right now as it goes around the world and meets with leaders is a strong show of support and um, solidarity among democracies, um, a show of support towards Russia, towards China, that uh, not just the West, but democratic countries around the world are united, both um, standing strong uh, in support of Ukraine, but also standing strong economically, looking forward to the future of taking on the competition from China. And I think in this meeting, it seemed to me like a, a lot of optics on that and a lot of very strong and I would say accurate rhetoric uh, when the president talked about this is an inflection point. Um, it absolutely is an inflection point. You have, you know, Russia waging war on Ukraine. You have China being extremely strategic about how it controls the resources for clean energy. And then you have climate change, which is driving a complete overhaul of the industrial base. And I think the bottom line is, unless Western democracies find ways to access these critical minerals that we've been talking about, the leaders have been talking about all day, if they find ways to actually build the technology they need, if they don't, they will not be producing vehicles you know, in the next couple of decades, because we're moving away from traditional fossil fuel vehicles. So I, I think that scene setting was really effective today. I think the talk about an inflection point and in the speech by President Biden, this call for doing big things, building big things together, but going through the communique, it's hard to see um, exactly how we're stepping up to that challenge. There was an announcement of a year-long task force on critical minerals that will be co-chaired by uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland and then a special coordinator from the White House. I mean, that, you know, it wasn't a cabinet secretary level that was announced. It was this more bureaucratic, low-level person. So we'll see what that all amounts to. Um, you know, there's been talk about, you know, how can the United States use the Defense Production Act to fund and finance development of critical minerals in Canada. But the reality is right now, everyone's dependent on China. It's going to take an incredibly long time to build mines for these critical minerals. And given the lofty rhetoric, the big issues that were set out, it doesn't seem like any huge steps were taken here. And there doesn't seem to be yet, maybe they'll coalesce around this, but there doesn't seem to be a vision for how North America should really go about this. And maybe this task force will start to do that. Um, but it felt like very small steps on that kind of 
big challenge. Yeah, well, well, picking up on that point, I'll bring you here, Rob. We know, you know, when you talk about critical minerals in this country, so much has yet to be decided. The, the, the environmental assessment of it, are they willing to expedite environmental assessment? And what about the building of a road to the Ring of Fire in northern Ontario, which would access the, where the, the critical minerals are? It's just one we've been site. talking about for decades. Uh, yeah. yeah, look, what you're asking uh, and what you're answering by asking the question is there are no facts in the future. Uh, and, and, and uh, you know, President Biden expressed befuddlement as to why people might be concerned about this. He said, I'm a little confused uh, as to why this might be a disadvantage for Canada. Well, I, I, I can help him a little bit on that, uh, because he prefaced that by saying, as long as I'm president. Well, we've just, uh, before he was president, there was a guy named Donald Trump who came in and essentially tore up all of the agreements that we had written in stone, agreed upon after years of negotiations. Uh, and uh, as long as he's president, Justin Trudeau is going to be able to pick up the phone and get the president of the United States to listen to him without, without a doubt. Um, but uh, President Biden is very popular in the United States. Um, he's popular in Canada, but not in the U.S. Depending on who his opponent might be, he could go down to defeat if he decides to run again. We're not even sure if he's going to decide to run again. So there are a lot of unknowns in the future and very few facts in the future. Mm -hmm. Now, one other sticking... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Louisa. Yeah, I was going to say, absolutely. And, and what, was, um, what was striking to me was, obviously, this trip was also an attempt just to reset relations, right? I mean, Canada had been on such a defensive posture in its relationship with the United States, um, especially under the Trump administration, where they were constantly, you know, battling back against the renegotiation of NAFTA and, and some of the harsh words from President Trump. Um, and then under the beginning of the Biden administration, there was the um, Inflation Reduction Act, which Canada also battled to get certain carve outs and exemptions from. And so this is now an attempt to kind of say, okay, let's Let's move forward on 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 a friendly basis. I will note that here in Washington, of course, um, the big issue is um, the European Union wanting carve outs from the IRA. And they're saying we want the same treatment as Canada. So Canada is perceived as actually um, having received a really great deal uh, on uh, on the IRA that other allies want. So um, I think the way this issue is portrayed is very different um, in the United States than it is in Canada. Mm -hmm. Now, I apologize. I'm quickly running out of time here because we're so delayed today and that news conference went a little bit longer than expected. But, Louise, I do want to pick up with you the, the subject of Haiti, which she, Rob and I have been talking about today. Uh, obviously, the United States, we heard it from Antony Blinken when he came last year, wants Canada to lead some type of multilateral uh, mission to Haiti to stabilize that country. But there is pushback from Ottawa. Instead, what we're having here is this announcement of a hundred million dollars for equipment, financial support and training for police. Where does that leave that ask from Washington? Will they be picking it up again? I mean, we'll have to see. I think the bigger question here for the United States is they're looking around the world and they're saying the world has changed, right? I mean, Russia is resurgent. China is not the China we thought it was just 10 years ago. Um, these are big competitors and big threats. Who are our allies and who is going to lead? And so they're looking to Canada. What can you lead on? They're looking to other countries. We have you know new countries joining NATO. This is a moment of everyone reorganizing and thinking about what do the next 10 years look like? And Canada has done some work on bolstering its defense um, spending and, and its ac acquisition of, of military equipment. Uh, but how is it planning now to, to lead? Is it just going to wait for the U.S. to do it or is it going to take a more 
um, aggressive sort of leadership role on certain issues. And so Haiti is one area where I think the United States has always looked to Canada to say, hey, can you be more assertive, um, more proactive in the hemisphere? And Ottawa has said, we're not comfortable. We, we have our own um, assessment of, of what will and won't work here. And, and this is a difference of opinion. So whether the United States will keep pushing on that, we'll see. Louisa Savage, thank you for this. Uh, Rob Russo, thank you for the day. And sorry that we're out of time. But again, I really appreciate both of you joining our program today. And so ended a very busy day for the U.S. president, wrapping up a two-day working visit, as it has been described, ending with a gala dinner at the Canadian Aviation and Space Museum. Thank you for joining us as we shared with you the highlights of the visit. I'm Michael Serapio. For everyone here at CPAC, we'll see you again next time.